0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Nicole, and like always, I am joined here again by the lovely Journey and Rebecca. This week, Journey is going to be telling us all about the famous case of the Lindbergh kidnapping. And then Rebecca will be educating us on the science of forensic document examination and how it played a role in this case. I would also like to note that there's a listener's discretion advised as there are detailed descriptions of kidnapping and child death. So with that being said, Journey, would you like to start us off with a little case study?
1: For sure. So, to start, I'm going to give you guys just a brief overview of who Charles Lindbergh Sr. was and what he was famous for before I go into his son's kidnapping, because that plays a really big role in the case. Um, So, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Sr. was born on February 4th, 1902. He grew up in Little Falls, Minnesota, in Washington, D.C. His father, Charles August Lindbergh, was a Minnesotan congressman from 1907 to 1917. And his dad was a vocal anti-war advocate and supporter of neutrality. Um, I don't remember why I included that, but <laughs> uh, one of my sources uh, said that, um, after the war, Lindbergh Sr. became also a supporter of neutrality and was kind of, like, against the whole situation that was going on with World War Two. um... And so Lindbergh went to school at the University of Wisconsin for only two years before his interest in aviation led him to enroll in a flying school in Lincoln, Nebraska. And so he also bought a World War I Curtis JN4, or Jenny, during that time, and that's a plane, and he made a few stunt flying tours through the southern and midwestern states. And I'm not really sure how to explain what this plane looks like, but basically picture just, like, a super old plane with two wings where, like, one wing is on top of the plane and the other one's parallel with it on the bottom and, like, people can stand in between the wings. And when I saw a picture of it, I pictured, like, these ladies, like, standing in the wings and, like, dancing. Kind of. I don't know why. I, th- I feel like I saw an old movie or something that had them dancing in between the wings on the plane. Um, but yeah, I'll post a photo like on our website for everyone who wants to see it and doesn't want to Google it. Um, in 1926, after completing one year at a flying school in Texas, Lindbergh became an airmail pilot and was given the route from St. Louis to Mis- St. Louis, Missouri, to Chicago. Um, I imagine this was quite the distance to fly at this time because he received financial backing from a group of St. Louis businessmen to compete for the Ortege prize, Orteg prize. Um, the Orteg prize was a $25,000 reward to the first person to fly nonstop across the Atlantic between New York and Paris. Um... To complete this, Lindbergh had a single-engine monoplane built, especially for him, which had two extra fuel tanks built in. And so they were situated in front of the pilot, so he had to use a periscope to see where he was going. And for those of you who don't know, a periscope is what, like, peeks out of the top of the submarine and, like, allows them to um, look what's above the water. And so this plane became known as the Spirit of St. Louis. And in preparation for his flight, Lindbergh flew from San Diego to New York with only one stopover in St. Louis, which took place from May 10th to 12th, 1927.
0: Do you then, sorry to interrupt? Yeah. Because of the um whatever you call it of this prize, did a lot of people die attempting to do this flight, if you know? Yes.
1: Um, I don't know the okay. exact number, but I do have an example coming up of two people who did okay. die or disappear, okay. I guess. Um, so, yeah, on May 8th, a few days prior to his jaunt across the United States, Charles Nungesser, a French flying ace, and his navigator, Francois Coley, disappeared after they started their journey from New York to Paris during their attempt to win the Ortega Prize. And so they were last seen over Ireland. So they made it, like across the Atlantic they just didn't make it to Paris Um, and so this disappearance really like highlighted the danger of what Charles Lindbergh was undertaking alone and so he was going to do it without a navigator he was going to do it completely solo which is really cool
0: and so you do crazy things for a lot of money because I feel like at that time that's a lot of money
1: (laughs) yeah in 1927 $25,000 it feels like a lot now um, so at 7.52 a.m. on May 20th, 1927, after being delayed for a few days due to weather, Charles Lindbergh took off from Roosevelt Field on Long Island and headed east. He passed over St. John's, Newfoundland shortly before nightfall and then continued on to open seas. He flew just under 6,000 kilometers in 33 and a half hours and then landed in Les Bourges Field in Paris at 10.24 p.m. on May 21st. He was mobbed by the crowd of 100,000 people that were, like, eagerly waiting his arrival. And so this kind of shot him into a form of stardom. And he became very well known on both sides of the Atlantic. And the U.S. president at the time, Calvin Coolidge, presented him with the Distinguished Flying Cross and made him a colonel in the Air Corps Reserve.
0: To interrupt quickly, because I just Googled it, $25,000 then is equivalent to about $400,000 today. $400,500. Wow. So a lot of money. Ew.
1: What a prize. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I'd probably I would risk across. my
0: life for that too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep. All right. Yeah. So like after he completed this trip successfully, he flew back and forth quite a bit to kind of just, like, show off. Um, but during a trip to Mexico, Charles Lindbergh met Anne Morrow, the daughter of U.S. Ambassador Dwight Morrow, and they fell in love, and they were married by May 1929. I don't know when he went down there, so I don't know if that was, like, a fast marriage, or if they, like, courted for a year or something. Um, but anyway, he taught Anne how to fly and she became his co-pilot and navigator for many flights and they traveled to many countries around the world together, which I think is so cute. Um, <laughs> anyway, a year later, on June 22nd, 1930, they welcomed their first child, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., or Charlie. Unfortunately, two years later, in March 1932, Charlie was kidnapped from their home and found murdered a little while later. Um, This case became one of the most famous of the 1930s, largely due to Charles Lindbergh Sr.'s fame. And so, around 9 p.m. on March 1st, the kidnappers broke into the second floor nursery. They took Charles Lindbergh Jr. and left a ransom note asking for $50,000, which... Easily $800,000 now, I guess. Um, and so the baby was discovered missing one hour later by his nanny, Betty Gao. And the Lindberghs told the local police, who then gave the investigation over to the New York or the New Jersey State Police. And when they were searching the crime scene, they found the ransom note, an open windowsill, and muddy footprints in the nursery. Um, the latter, used to reach the second floor was found just a short distance away from their home, and it was broken, um, and there were more footprints leading into the woods at the edge of the property. Um, Two more ransom notes were received not long after the original was found, and then the kidnappers raised their ransom to $70,000. The Lindberghs and the police attempted to contact the kidnappers, but they had no success, and as a result, a retired New York teacher... John Condon um put an advertisement in a Bronx newspaper on March 8th, 1932. I don't know why he inserted himself into this investigation. Um, but he was able to um successfully communicate with the kidnappers and he like offered to act as a mediator between the kidnappers and the Lindbergh, and so he received a reply from them, like, eight days after posting the advertisement um, saying that the kidnappers accepted his offer to act as a mediator, and so he communicated with them for many of the following weeks through, like, newspaper columns, and then the kidnappers reciprocated by placing, like, ransom notes, pretty much, um, across, like, different locations within New York City, kind of as, like, a cat and mouse kind of game, and then... On March 16th, Condon received Charlie's sleeper as proof of identity, and the kidnappers demanded the ransom within the next two weeks. And then on March 29th, the nanny, Betty Gow, found Charlie's thumb guard near the entrance to the estate. And then the night of April 2nd, Condon met with a guy named John, or called John, at St. Raymond Cemetery in the Bronx. With Charles Lindbergh waiting in a car nearby. And so, because Charles Lindbergh was a colonel, he had a very active part in this investigation as well. Um, And so, Condon talked to, or talked John back down to the original ransom of $50,000 in exchange for the location of Charlie. Um, John took the $50,000 in like gold certificates and gave Condon a note that said the child could be found on a boat called the Nelly which was docked near Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Um, so, like I said, Lindbergh was in charge of the boat, like, searching it, and they didn't find Charlie. Um, and so, since they had gotten, like, rotten information from John, they released the serial numbers they had they had from the certificates um, and gave those to the newspapers and the banks.
0: Couldn't then, this be... Um, sorry to interrupt. Could this not good. be a conflict of interest with the dad working on the case that's i was just thinking the same thing i know
1: it really struck me as odd and i was like why on earth did he have any involvement in this case but they were like well he was a colonel so he was had a high enough
2: standing to work this case And i'm like yeah but he's still the dad like exactly i get he was a colonel but like i think your feelings would override your rationality when your own child is the one kidnapped 100%
1: 100% yeah and so I don't know I have a lot of issues I feel with like, this
2: yeah I feel so, like uh, they could just
0: call in someone else of somewhat of a high like they
1: did they had you know? like the New Jersey State Police and they had another colonel um he has a really long and confusing last name Um, but yeah, Lindbergh did, like, he was in charge of, like, searching the crime scene and searching the boat, and there was something else that he was in charge of, and I was like, why is he the main person? Like, that seems Hmm. really weird. But yes, um, on May 12th, the case took a very tragic turn. Charlie's body was found badly decomposed less than five miles from the Lindbergh home, His body was found accidentally and partially buried. Oh, his body was found accidentally and was partially buried. I have no punctuation in that sentence, so it was very hard to read. Um, The body was found by a truck driver, William Allen. Charlie's head was crushed. There was a hole in the skull and some body parts were missing. And the autopsy revealed that he had been killed by a blow to his head, either during or shortly after the abduction which is very sad. Um, On May 13th, President Herbert Hoover authorized the FBI to serve as the primary federal agency on the case and gave full access to resources um, of the U.S. Department of Justice to the investigation. And then on June 22nd, 1932, the Federal Kidnapping Act, or the Lindbergh Law, was passed due to, like, such public outrage. And so... This law made kidnapping across state lines a federal crime and said that such an offense could be punishable by death. So that was really quite tumbling. And then in September 1934, the case had another major break when a service station attendant in New York recorded the license plate number of a man who paid with a $10 gold certificate. Um. And so the license plate was traced to a Bronx residence of a German-American carpenter who matched the physical description of John that Condon had provided. And then on September 19th, 1934, 35-year-old Bruner Hoffman was arrested and a $20 gold certificate from the ransom payment was found on him. So they were able to match the serial numbers on these certificates to the ones that they had given the um, kidnapper. And then the day after his arrest, they found more than $13,000 in gold ransom certificates in Hopman's garage. And Condon later identified Hopman as the John that he met in the cemetery that day. Um, and then handwriting analysis by the FBI found that Hopman's penmanship was stylistically consistent with the ransom notes that the Lindberghs had received and it didn't help that he had a criminal record that included burglary and he had served time before but he was clean now um and he claimed that he was just holding the money for his friend who had returned to germany in 1933 but then died um so it seems very it's a very fishy excuse for just having $13,000 but yeah that's
0: of a course. little bit suspicious like and yeah, I, 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 I just I just hold 13000 for all of my friends traveling. <laughs>
1: like, yeah, so I think he was, like, a roommate who was like, hey, hold this until I come back. But then he died, and I was like,
0: um, okay. Did they not have banks? Like, why would I... you not put <laughs> $13,000 in a bank?
1: I don't know. I, yeah, I can't answer that. Probably because they had the same certificate as the one that or serial numbers that they were looking for. So they're like, oh, we can't go to the bank. They'll know we kidnapped know. this kid. And so then, on October 8th, 1934, Bruno Hopman was arrested, or no, was indicted for the murder of Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. Um, jury selection took place on January 2nd, 1935, and the trial began the next day on January 3rd. And the trial took place in Flemington, New Jersey, and captivated the world as they entered this new year. And the evidence presented at trial was largely circumstantial and included things like tool marks on the ladder used in the kidnapping appeared to match tools Haltman owned. The ladder incorporated a piece of flooring that was missing from his attic. Condon's telephone number was found written on a closet doorframe in Haltman's home. Um, Lindbergh took the stand and testified that he recognized Houtman's voice from the night of the ransom payment, and Houtman drove a Dodge sedan that matched the description of one scene in the vicinity of the Lindbergh house a day prior to the kidnapping.
2: So it sounds like a lot of circumstantial evidence, but there's a lot of it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and when I read this, because I thought the parents kidnapped the kid, um, not actually Hauptmann. Um, So when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, no, that's totally fake. He didn't do that. That's mm-hmm. not enough evidence. But then I learned that he actually did that, and I was really
0: confused. <laughs> it seems like the evidence that they're bringing up in trial is very much planted of some sort. Like, it's, oh, it could. Like, it's they're trying to just fit the narration of this guy did it.
1: Yeah, and Hauptman even took the stand, and he's like, I'm innocent, I have been beaten by the police and forced to produce handwriting samples that match the ransom notes. Um, And even so, the trial continued for five weeks, and the jury deliberated for 11 hours and returned with a guilty verdict on February 13th, 1935, and he was sentenced to death. Um, He appealed many times while he was... um, on death row and denied any involvement in the kidnapping until he was executed via the electric chair on April 3rd, 1936. Um, None of my sources gave a reason as to why Bruno Hauptmann kidnapped the Lindbergh baby, which is annoying. And I totally thought the parents did it, and I kind of read all of this information with that thought, so I was really confused when he actually did it, because it doesn't seem like there's enough evidence and enough reason behind... Why he would do that. But I feel like it's just because they were in the middle of the Great Depression. He probably didn't have a lot of money, and the uh, Lindberghs were so famous that kidnapping their first child was just an easy way to get some money. But I don't know why he killed him so quickly. Um, and then, the last little bit of information I have was that the Lindberghs had to move to Europe in December 1935. Um, due to death threats against their second son John, um, but other than that, they seem to live happily ever after. And I believe they did return to the states. And then one of my sources said that Charles Lindbergh Senior had like three mistresses and thirteen children, so he did well considering his first child was kidnapped and then brutally murdered.
0: Wow. So yeah, yeah, that doesn't seem to have affected him
1: if that source is right. <laughs> yeah I was, well even like on wikipedia you google or just google i guess how many kids does charles lindbergh have and he's like 13 but they don't all have the lindbergh last name so i'm assuming that some of them were oh, from mistresses
0: yeah he's just the baby and then guy one of them all.
1: yeah so that's all that i have there wasn't really much information on the kidnapping specifically um i really wish that they had given like some information as to why it happened. It just felt like it was missing an entire chunk of information, like why he did it, why they found him guilty. And I, I don't think he did it, but
0: that's just me. Well, I am very intrigued by the whole case too, because like, you have to think if they had done it because they're famous, because they had all this money, because he, won this prize or like you said like the great depression like they had so many things that could have led to it um Mm -hmm. but it's yeah i find it strange that there's no there's nothing at least from what we could find there's just nothing
1: yeah they're just like oh he did it oh he said he was innocent oh he died and i was like i need more information
2: yeah like the outcome of the crime confused me as well because like i guess we're all we all only had like half the story because journey you thought it was the parents and personally i'm a little suspicious of them too <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. but
2: when i heard the story i didn't realize that they actually killed the son i i thought he was found alive
1: yeah and like so this why... was very
2: surprising to me
1: <laughs> wouldn't you as a kidnapper want to keep your leverage like if you kill the kid immediately like they did you have no leverage No. Like, you can't... Like, you gave them, like, his sleeping clothes to prove that you had him, but you have no other proof.
0: Yeah, there's nothing... I mean, how would you prove, though, during that time that someone you've kidnapped is still alive? Other than just sending, like...
1: They have cameras.
0: Yeah. It would just be quite the process. Yeah, it'd be a bit of a process. But... I don't know. I think it was... Yeah, I don't know. I think it was very, like, quick to close. That's what makes me the most suspicious, in that they're, like, grasping at straws for all of their circumstantial evidence.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, like, he had a Dodge sedan that matched one that was seen a day before in the vicinity of the Lindbergh house.
0: Did they say how like that- common these cars are at the time in that neighborhood? no. <laughs>
1: I was like, well, I know. I'm like that's really weird. That yeah, that is used to. I don't know, whatever. I was not satisfied with the ending of that story, but that's okay. <laughs> Maybe we'll. And there was no physical evidence. There was like footprints, but they weren't like clear footprints. They were just like muddy footprints, and so they couldn't even do like any pattern analysis or anything on them. But
0: even then, I don't think you could use knows. that as a main source of evidence. Like you'd have to use that as a corro- corro- I can never say this word. corroborating um piece.
1: But it's better than this guy's ladder is broken yeah. and he's okay. missing a piece of flooring in his attic. Yeah, that's
0: that's true now that you say that.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I just wish we could go back and reanalyze it with the tools that we have now and I feel like there would definitely be a different outcome.
0: Yeah. I agree. Well, hopefully we're going to switch on over to Rebecca and hopefully her document examination and teaching us all about it will satisfy your heart a little bit more (laughs) than um, how that ended the case study. Um, So with that being said, do you want to tell us all about the science, Rebecca?
2: Yeah, I would love to. Um, So I just want to start by saying that when people typically think of forensic document examination, um, they usually associate it with handwriting experts who examine, like, the style of handwriting on the document to see if it matches the style of the person that, like, they're suspecting actually wrote it. Um, and in the case of the Lindbergh ki- kidnapping, that's exactly what they did. They were comparing two handwriting styles to see their similarity. Um, however, forensic document examination is actually quite a bit more than that. Um, It is often used to examine handwriting style and also examine various aspects of both handwritten and typed documents. Um, So another common term for this is also questioned document examination. They're actually used pretty interchangeably. Um, And the Scientific Working Group for Forensic Document Examination gives a really great description of exactly what document examiners do. So I'm just going to read that for you because I thought it would be better than just trying to paraphrase it. Um, So they said, uh, the role of the forensic document examiner is to... "...conduct scientific examinations, comparisons, and analyses of documents in order to establish genuineness or non-genuineness, or to reveal alterations, additions, or deletions. It's to identify or eliminate persons as the source of handwriting. Uh, It's used to identify or eliminate the source of machine-produced documents, typing or other impression marks or relative evidence." Um, and it's also used to preserve and or restore legibility. They also write technical reports and give expert testimony, unquote. So that's just the general description of what they do and how they contribute to forensic science. Um, so forensic document examination is actually used in a very wide array of cases. Like here, it was used in a kidnapping and ransom case. Um, but some other Examples of cases or situations that documents may be required to be examined for authenticity include but aren't limited to suicide cases and where there's a suicide note found, Um, homicide cases, again, where there's a document found, contested wills, uh, extortion, kidnapping, like the Charles Lindbergh case, Uh, identity theft, fraud, contested contracts, forgeries, and also counterfeits. So really, absolutely any type of crime that there were documents involved, whether it just be someone trying to forge a signature or whether it is a ransom note, uh, we can use forensic document examiners to figure out where exactly it came from or if it's really right, uh, sorry, or if it's really authentic. So in many of these cases mentioned above, some of the things that they're looking for on examination include whether the author of the document really is who they say it was, um, whether a signature was forged, whether there's any physical evidence on the document, which could include like fingerprints, um, and whether they can use this document to include or exclude suspects from the crime. There is more, but these are just a few of like the most common examples and uses of them. Um, so, depending on the type of document, like if it's handwritten or typed investigators might find different types of useful evidence. However, for both types of the documents, um, examiners need to have a known specimen, so something that's written by the suspect or printed from the same printer, something like that, uh, in order to actually make the comparison and complete their analysis. Otherwise, well, they have nothing to go on, so how would we know if it's fake? So Some of the types of evidence that investigators look for besides analyzing handwriting style, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier, is the most common thing people think of when we hear a forensic document examination, um, is that they also look for various physical materials that are used to create the document. Um, So this could be the type of paper it's written on. It could be the type of printer that it was printed from, Um, what writing instruments and inks they use. So did they use a graphite pencil or did they use some sort of ink pen, um, and also binding devices used, like if it was a document with multiple pages, like did they use glue or did they use staples or that sort of thing. And also they want to know how all of these physical ways of creating a document interact with each other, because that can tell us even more about the unique identity of it. So now that we know some of the types of evidence that examiners look for, uh, how is document examination conducted? There are a few techniques that are common practice amongst examiners, and some of the techniques differ depending on whether you're examining typed or written documents. The National Forensic Science Technology Center, or NFSTC, provide a really great overview of the most common techniques employed, so I'm going to be kind of explaining a little bit about each of the techniques that they've listed on their website. So, the first one is examination of handwriting. Um, Everybody has their own individualistic style of writing. While two people can have very similar styles, it's likely that there are still going to be identifiable differences between them. Uh, When comparing handwriting, examiners will look at a variety of characteristics that are commonly different amongst uh, people's styles. And this can include the spacing between the words and letters, the slant or slope of their words, like are they writing kind of like what italics looks like on a typed document, Um, The speed and position, or sorry, the speed that they wrote it and the position they held their pen or pencil at. That one, side note, I'm not positive how they figure that out, but it might just be something to do with the way the pen skips or if stuff is smudging. I'm not positive. Um, And they also look for how legible the writing is. Like, are they a neat or messy writer? Uh, The use of capital letters, like, are they only doing them at the beginning of sentences? Are they throwing them in randomly? Or are they only using capital letters? Um, and also the punctuation they use and the proportion of letters, which I didn't completely understand the, de- the difference between letter spacing and letter proportion. But from my understanding, they are very similar. It's just kind of how smushed together the words are. Um, and then they also look for any embellishments used in the document. So this would be like, when they're writing something and they write an I, do they do they put a little heart where the dot of the I should be? Like, that would be unique. Um, so, yeah, there are some other attributes they look for, but these are the some of the most, like, common ones that are uh, looked for in examination. So... Having a reference document is, as I said earlier, imperative to examination of handwriting, uh, because without one, we have nothing to compare the writing to. So examiners can request a sample of writing, in which case the person being asked for a sample will be closely monitored while they write the sample to ensure that they're actually the ones writing it, they're not having a friend or something doing it. Um, however, that makes me think of the person who was convicted for Charles Lindbergh's case because he did say that the police made him write um, a letter that looked identical to it. So I don't know, maybe there is space for coercion there. Um, it's definitely possible, I think. With that, um,
0: <clears throat> sorry to interrupt because at least for yeah, me, no like when I write if I write more with the pencil at like a 90 degree angle, it's a cleaner, neater handwriting than if I were to write it on more of a slant. So I feel like in that case, if someone's watching you write it, you could just like choose essentially how you want to write it,
2: if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I was thinking that too, when I was researching this, like I feel like I feel like it's not as reliable when they get, when they have to request written documents, just because I feel like there's more space for the criminal to like knowingly change their style. But I guess they must have other ways as well of determining if that's something they're doing. Um, And even
1: like Hauptmann said that he was forced, like he had to rewrite things so many times until what he was writing matched the sample or whatever. And who knows if that's true or not, but
2: yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of room for bias uh, when requesting samples. Um, but besides requested samples, they can also use a collected writing specimen, which would have been uh, a document or something written or completed by the suspected person prior to the investigation taking place. I think this would be more reliable just because they, they wouldn't have the foresight to try to change their writing. Um, yeah, but those are the two ways they can get comparisons for that. So the next technique used um, is revealing text from indented impressions. I find this one really cool. Um, So I'm sure many of you guys have seen this before, like when you're writing on a notepad or writing something on a piece of paper that's on top of another piece of paper. Um, Oftentimes, once you turn the page to write on the new one, you'll see that there's some like indentations of the words you wrote on the prior page. Um, that's what indented impressions are. They're just the words basically etched into the page from prior writings. Um, So a lot of these aren't really legible to the naked eye, or if they are, then they're really hard to read. Um, But document examiners have special techniques that make it much easier to see the uh, indents so that they can actually read them. So examiners will often use uh, some sort of electrostatic detection device or EDD. Uh, and this works by applying an electrostatic charge to the document. And following this, they apply black toner to the charge document. Um, the reason for applying electric charge is that in theory, uh, the indents should already hold more of a charge than the untouched piece of paper because of all the friction that was caused Uh, static friction between the pages while you were writing. Um, And so where your pen went into the paper, there's going to be more static charge from friction than where you didn't touch the two pieces together. Um, So when they add the electrostatic charge, it allows it to kind of get, it kind of separates the charges. And that way when they put toner on it, the toner only really sticks to the pieces of paper that are most charged, um, which, If it is the uh, indents, then it's going to sink into the indents and make them legible. Unfortunately, this doesn't really work on documents that weren't stored well, like if they were stored in a high humidity environment. Um, But when they're stored well, um, examiners have been able to obtain indents on a piece of paper from another written page up to seven layers of paper from the indented one, which I think is crazy. Um and they were also able to obtain indent readings from documents that were over 60 years old. Wow. So if they're stored well, it's it's very long-lasting evidence.
1: Do you That's really cool.
2: Would obviously it impact it with how hard you're
0: writing like which obviously, but like with the layers up to seven layers of paper, like how hard was that person writing? Were they like etching it into the page
2: or just normal writing? Honestly, I was wondering that, too. Like, sometimes I'll be able to see indents from my own writing, yeah. like, two or three pages down, but seven seems excessive. I guess it also <laughs> depends on the
0: paper. Like, I find with, um, like, the three-hole lined paper, they're so thin for the most part that it just goes pages mm-hmm. deep. But
2: interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I rip the top layer of that page just by writing on it. Yeah. Like, lined paper is so thin. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so electrostatic detection device is a great method and it's very frequently used, but a simpler and probably more cost-effective method as well, um, is, uh, just shining a light on the document at an oblique angle, which is just an angle that's not 90 degrees. It could be obtuse or acute. Um, and then at certain angles, it's like the indents will kind of like shine a little more or they'll reflect differently than the rest of the page. And that allows them to take a picture of it, which is also more legible than the original document. So the next technique used, um, the title of the technique was just called detecting alterations, obliterations, erasures, and page substitutions. So I'm just going to give a really brief description of what each of these things are. Um, obliterations are when someone tries to destroy the document or parts of the document um, using methods such as burning it or pouring something like bleach on it, or even something as simple as like writing something and then using a different pen to aggressively scribble over what you just wrote um, using another writing instrument. So that's obliteration. Erasure or sorry, erasures um, are when someone tries to remove a part of a document. So hence the name, this can be done with an eraser. We erase things very frequently when we're writing. Um, however, people also try to use other things that might seem more permanent, such as knives or sandpaper, to like grind it off of the page. Um, and then I had a bit of a hard time finding a real definition of what page substitution is. Um, but judging by the name, I'm going to make the assumption that it's just when someone attempts to completely substitute a whole page of an original document for, for a new one, just so that you can't see that they tried to change the paper. Um, yeah, but then finally, alterations are essentially anything that someone does to a document to try to change it. So this includes removing, adding, or changing parts of the document, but it also includes obliteration, erasure, and page substitution. So To find evidence from documents that have been altered, obliterated, or erased, examiners use various modes of photography with alternate light sources. Um, I was having a bit of a hard time paraphrasing and explaining exactly how they do this, so I'm going to share another quote uh, that explains it perfectly from the NFSTC. Um, and they said, quote, they use radiation filtered at various wavelengths an imaging instruments such as a video spectral comparator. Um, and these can reveal writing that has been added with a different ink or has been altered or removed by exploiting variations in the way different inks respond to different wavelengths of light. So basically, like if you shine a blue light at a piece of text that has both blue and red writing on it, you'll be able to see, I can't remember which way it goes, but I think you'd be able to see the red writing, but you wouldn't see the blue under blue light. So basically just shining different wavelengths of light at a page can help you see through if someone tried to like scratch through some writing. Um, so just for example, under certain light sources uh, combined with an infrared filter, a document containing information written in ink that's faded over time can be enhanced or processed to actually appear darker and therefore more legible. Uh, that was the last part of the quote. I just thought it was a good example. Like I, I think of like fax pages where like over time, the the ink on the fax page just is you almost can't read it because it fades so much. Um, but using these alternate light sources, they're able to make it appear much brighter than it really is. Um, and just to finish off uh, the detecting alterations technique, um, there is a really cool example of the difference between an obliterated note that's observed under normal light and then infrared light in our source images. I just thought it was super cool, so I had to include that. <laughs> I have a question that I guess kind of relates to this. Um, okay. I
0: don't you know, like, invisible inks? I know people can make them out of, like, lemon juice or something like that. There's some sort of mixture. Would they obviously use mm-hmm. alternate light source to detect that if they can't see it with the visible eye? Do you know?
2: Yeah. So I'm I'm not 100% positive on the type of light used. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if I remember correctly, when with invisible ink, I think it's... I want to say it's a UV light that they use. Um, But I know like there was an example in the office that I'm thinking (laughs) of right now. um, When, (laughs) uh, when Dwight writes secret letters to all the salesmen in the office and then It was just some random facts that he sent to everyone. But then in it, he left a little code that says, you'll want to heat my words because he somehow made a type of ink that would only appear when you heated it over like a candle or something. So that's what I thought of when I was researching this. Okay, Um, But yeah, I think with invisible ink, UV light is one of the common methods for it. Neat. Thank you. Yeah. Um, So another technique was for determining individual dye components I'm not 100% positive if we've spoken about this in a past episode, Um, but to determine individual dye components in a sample, examiners often use liquid chromatography to figure out the chemical composition of the inks. Um, So liquid chromatography is basically just a chemical process um, that allows you to kind of see all of the chemicals that are in like sample or that are all in one composite liquid I don't know how to explain this with
0: words (laughs) so does it basically just like separate all of the internal
2: molecule components kind of thing I think so, yeah, so like we can't see it with our naked eye, but you'd basically run liquid chromatography on like this is saying ink, and then it'll there's a computer that goes with it, and then through whatever pro- however they do liquid chromatography, um they'd basically get an output from the computer that says this is like sixty seven percent nickel oh. and twelve percent lead, and that's, that's kind of like when we did um.
0: Raman spectroscopy, I think, where we had to do, I think this would be for a toxicology type thing where it basically shines is it a laser that it shines in? No, you said chemicals. Um I'm not positive. I'm actually just going to look up but basically liquid chromatography. I think if they're similar, they they bounce off of what it's made out of? And then however much movement there is, that's what gives you, like, different wavelengths or something. Um, And then you have, like, this database that has all of the... I don't know. It just stores a bunch of, like, materials and what they're made out of. And you can cross-reference with that. Maybe.
2: I could also be talking out my ass right now. So... (laughs) So I think it is similar because it, it does have the word chromatography. Um, and there's there's like liquid chromatography, mass spectrometry, which if you watch forensic fr- files, you'll probably hear that in every single episode. Um, but yeah, it's basically just a form of chemical, um, it's a chemical separation technique that just it lets them identify individual chemicals in a compound. Gotcha. So a lot easier than. So
1: with Raman spectroscopy, um, that one uses light as their um, like source, whereas liquid chromatography, everything's like the mobile phase is liquid. So like they go in, they dissolve all the ions out. They like measure the levels of those. Whereas with Raman spectroscopy, they like shine a light, and the way the light scatters tells you what chemical it is
2: interesting well thank you so much for letting me know the differences between those because I've always kind of struggled to figure out like exactly how they're different
1: (laughs) yeah and so like with Raman spectroscopy it's also non-destructive whereas I believe liquid chromatography they are dissolved so it does destroy the sample
2: yes that actually brings me into my next point about using liquid chromatography (laughs) perfect (laughs) Perfect segue. Um, So yeah, as I said, they use liquid chromatography on the ink on a document to figure out exactly what they're made up of. Um, However, in order to do this, the examiner has to cut out a small piece of the document with ink. Um, So even though they're obtaining evidence from this, they're also kind of destroying a piece of evidence for it. So take that as you will.
1: (laughs) Yeah, don't Um, love that, but kind of a necessary evil sometimes.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, So when they do obtain a chemical composition profile from this, um, they compare it, at least in the United States, it could be different here. The United States has like all the info for forensics, unfortunately, (laughs) Um, but they compare it to the International Inc. Library, which is a database that's maintained by the U.S. Secret Service. In um, this database contains the pro- chemical profiles of over ninety five hundred inks that have been manufactured since nineteen twenty.
1: What a random database!
2: Right? Can you imagine being the <laughs> organizer of a database of ink composition?
1: I'd be like, "Are you joking? Like, is this a real job? Like, I'm just." It gonna reminds break me of the database.
2: <laughs> it reminds me of the database of shoe prints. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like, things you wouldn't expect to have, but we have. We got them. <laughs> How many yep. inks can you make,
0: though? <laughs>
2: like, I See, feel like it's just... That's what I'm not sure of.
0: Oh. Well, obviously over 9,500 <laughs> <Yeah>. inks,
2: but... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's over 9,500. Um, And if I remember correctly, some of the inks that are on the database, like they're not even produced or manufactured anymore. So we just have like archival ink compositions, which is kind of cool. But I guess that's still really useful if we need to go back and examine old documents that, again, might've used these when they were in production, but aren't anymore. That's super cool. Mm -hmm. So the next technique um, is for typewritten and machine printed documents. Um, So some criminals, you know, they think they're being super smart by using a computer to type a document and print it out because, you know, it's a printer. How are they going to know it's me? But not even that's foolproof. Um, so, even printers and fax machines have their own unique differences. Um, and these differences can vary depending on the make and model of a printer. Um, some of the notable, blah, blah, sorry, some of the notable differences are whether they used an inkjet or a laser printer, um, or whether they used a photocopier or a fax machine. Um, And there's also been instances where examinators or examiners, sorry, have been able to narrow down the printer to the exact machine, not just the make and model. Um, It didn't really go into a lot of detail about this, but I suspect that it's because like even printers sometimes like the ink can skip or there could be like a like a little jam in one of the, the needles. And so you'd have areas where there's like missing ink in certain letters and stuff. And that's how they would further it narrow down the machine that was used. Um and the last one, the last technique that I had was specific to seals and stamps. Um so even though like when I was doing research for this, I wouldn't think that seals and stamps would be that helpful for document evidence. Um so seals and stamps include things like rubber stamp impressions, watermarks or embossed seals. Um I think embossed is when like the paper has little dots and you can rip it easy. Is that correct?
0: <laughs> no. So like embossings when you have like a raised imprint of it, if that makes sense. So like, oh, I can, okay. okay. Like
2: there's, there's, there's like, embossing on a, on a degree paper, I think.
0: Yeah. So you can take little like clamps basically, and you clamp it around a piece of paper and then it's going to like raise it to fit that form. And then you have like a little signature piece there. Oh, okay. Perfect. Well, thank
2: you. Cause I was a little unsure of what that was. Um, so yeah, those are a couple of what seals and stamps are when they refer to this. Um, they never, none of the sources I found really specified what unique techniques they use to identify characteristics on them. Um, but I kind of thought of it similarly to bullet comparisons. Um, and like bullet shells, like every gun has a unique um, spiral inside, and so we can use the spiral in the gun to identify whether the bullets we found or the bullet casings came from that gun. Um, it's pretty similar in that sense. Like, yeah, I'm just I'm going to explain why they're similar um, by an example that was given by, again, the NFSTC. Um, so there was a case in nineteen eighty nine of a dead girl. She was found in a garbage bag. Um, And forensic, this part was strange to me, but whatever. Forensic document examiners were called in to examine and compare the heat seal on the garbage bag that the girl was found in to the seals on the garbage bags at her parents' house. I'm not positive why a document examiner was called for that, but I assume it's just because it was the most similar thing to what they needed. Um, But yeah, so they were called in to compare the heat seal that kind of connects garbage bags together in a roll. Um, The one that was on the garbage bag the body was found in uh, compared it to the garbage bags at her parents' house. And the document examiners found that the seals lined up almost perfectly. I can't say perfectly because this is forensic science and nothing in science is perfect. Um, But it was significantly consistent with the bags in their house. Uh, which suggested that these bags were manufactured within seconds of each other and were probably ripped right from the same roll. Um so with this evidence it was actually one of the key pieces of evidence at trial. Um her own mother was convicted with her with her murder. So that's just my little tangent criminal case example for how seals and stamps can be important. Um Did her
1: mom actually do it? Like it was actually accurate?
2: I'm not positive, um, unfortunately, because the source I was using, like, it just used that as an example, and they de-identified it pretty well. Um, that was my little rundown of forensic document examination and the techniques that are used. Um, I thought it was pretty interesting. Like, when we started forensics, I thought this was pretty cool, but I was like, you know, like, how much evidence can it really give you? Like, is it really reliable? Um And I didn't find much regarding the reliability of it, but it has been used in a lot of cases. And we like research has generally shown that there are actually individualistic differences that can be used to help solve crimes. Um, So it seems like it's it's pretty useful, you know, Um, but I guess only time and further research will tell. Um, there are other methods that are used, but the ones I talked about seem to be like the most common that are out there. Um, I think it's super interesting how different our writing styles are. And I think it's super cool also that professionals, like people have dedicated their lives and research to learning the differences between our handwriting and being able to identify minute differences to help solve crimes. Like, that's just so cool. Um, but yeah, the last thing I wanted to say was that I mentioned them a couple times in this episode, um, so I just wanted to – we're also not sponsored by them. I just <laughs> thought they were helpful, and other people will appreciate it, but <laughs> um, – the National Forensic Science Technology Center, or what I've been calling it NFSTC, um, they have a lot of really great information about forensic document examination. And it's actually where I got a lot of the information for this episode. They're very thorough, um, but also explain it in a bit of a simpler way that helps the general public understand it. Um, yeah. So if you wanted to learn more about it, I would highly recommend their resources that can be found on their website. But, yeah, that's all I have to say on forensic document examination. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, I have another
0: question. I don't know why I'm full of questions today. Um, <laughs> you know the, like, type of ransom notes that people will, like, cut out letters from a magazine and glue them on? Would they also examine something like that? Or
2: would that be for some other department since it's, like, paper and I paper? I never... I didn't come across anything about those in my research. Um, I think, personally, this is just my opinion, so I'm not sure if it's correct. But I think it would go to the document examiners because they also look at like type of paper and type of like glues and stuff used, and they could probably identify like where the letters like which newspapers and magazines they came from if they searched hard enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it would take like a couple departments, but I think they would definitely be involved in it.
0: Neat. That's super cool.
2: Um,
0: well, that has been our episode on forensic document examination. Our next episode, I'm actually really excited about it's Ted Kaczynski and forensic linguistics. Um and if you've seen, there's a Netflix show, what is it? Unib- Unibomber? Something like that? So good. I recommend, it. yeah, I recommend so good, it. It's just Unibomber. Yeah, I recommend it. Oh, shoot. I didn't look up a joke. Um,
1: That's okay. I'm really excited because I'm on Forensic Linguistics next week, and I feel like I'm just going to be making some stupid sounds to kind of um, <laughs> illustrate <laughs> how linguistics can play a role in forensics. So kind of excited about that.
2: I'm also excited because we're on video and we'll get to see you making all those funny faces while you make <laughs> yeah. the funny sounds.
1: <laughs> we might have to record that one so we can make some more GIFs.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, well, I can't find a quick joke about writing. Um, so you know what? Next Next episode, we're going to have extra jokes, hopefully. I will. Nice. I will bring some to the table.
1: <laughs> I literally heard a joke earlier this week, and I was like, "Oh, that's so good! I need to remember that for the podcast." Didn't write it down. No idea what it was. So <laughs> you're welcome. I'll just leave you
0: hanging. <laughs> the best. Um, oh, jeepers! Well, you all can find us, or if you want to get in touch with us, we have an Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WTForensicsPC. Um, we're a little less active on YouTube and Twitter, so if you want kind of an, a quick response, um, Insta and Facebook's where it's at. You can also email us at whattheforensics at gmail.com and check out our website with what Rebecca said. We're going to put some source images um, just for you guys to kind of get an idea um, if you need a visual kind of help. But yeah, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time.
1: Bye. (laughs) Bye. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you next week.